everyone. Thanks for checking out this podcast. I hope today's conversation inspires you and builds your faith for the moment you are in right now. Know that God's love for you truly changes everything. Enjoy the message. What do you do when your expectations are not met? Your expectations, when they're not met, things like when they didn't get your order right, you know? When you thought they were going to come and visit, but, but then they didn't actually show up. When you were hoping he was going to treat you a different way, and then your expectations, they're, they're not met. It didn't go how you were hoping it would go. Let me ask, there's a few different ways that maybe your expectations, when they're not met, you react. Could be, number one, that you are somebody that likes to bottle it up. So, you know, let's just get it nice down deep, kind of hide it, keep it, you know, really, really, really tight to your own chest. Uh, Maybe number two, you get angry. You get to blow up. You want people to know and make sure that it's really clear to them. Maybe that's you. Maybe number three, you communicate clearly. You find a way to share your expectations with somebody, help them understand why they weren't met. Maybe it's number four, maybe you write a review. I love writing reviews. I love writing positive reviews, to be honest. But here we've got a review system. You can get online and you can write a review and make sure that people know where your expectations weren't met. Or maybe number five, you manipulate or control the situation. Now, this question I think is kind of helpful as we head into the Christmas season, because if we're all honest with one another, we know that Christmas is full of expectations. Your Christmas is full of expectations. You kind of wonder, what's he going to get you? right? You wonder. You wonder about when they're going to come and give you that visit. Or you wonder, maybe number three, what she's going to say at dinner. Christmas time is full of them. And if we're honest, if we're honest, probably at some point this season, your expectations will go unmet. And so you should know, how do I react when my expectations are unmet? Now, with all that in mind, Christmas, of course, this season full of expectations It's probably fair that they have those expectations because when we go back to the first Christmas and the original Christmas, that first Christmas story, it's full of expectations. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to unpack what some of those expectations really were and what they are so that we can know as readers what was going on at that very first Christmas. I think Christmas and the Christian Christmas narrative is fantastic. I've grown up in church. I grew up in this church, actually, most of my life. And so for 34 years, every year I've heard the Christmas story. And every year I'm surprised at how it continues to shape and mold and, and reform a little bit of who I am because it's just so powerful. And whether or not you've got a faith or you believe that this is a historical narrative or not, I really believe that you can experience something profound when you partake and dig into the Christmas story, it's got political intrigue, it's got drama, it's got mystery, it's got backstabbing, and it's got, as we are going to find out, expectations. So let me, uh, let me walk you through this, uh, this particular narrative. We're going to go to Matthew's gospel. And then when we think about the Christmas story, the Christian Christmas story, we gather it from kind of two main sources. There's the gospel of Matthew and the gospel of Luke, these two accounts that are detailing the life of Jesus and that include the bit about his birth. Now, both of them would have been able to interview the eyewitnesses to all of the things that were going on in those days. They would have understood the history of life in that region of the world. And probably even the author of Matthew would have been able to have a conversation with Jesus' mother herself 
to get lots of these particular details. And so we read in Matthew 2.1, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. Now, King Herod is going to be the figure that we're going to walk alongside of for this morning and hopefully, I think, discover a few things that are, that are fairly profound and maybe, maybe for you even a little bit surprising. So he was born in the reign of King Herod. And about that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem Now, these wise men, sometimes it's translated as magi. Sometimes in our songs, we read about the kings. They're not really kings, but, you know, we three kings of Orient are. It's those characters. We don't actually know how many of them there were. We get the idea that there could have been three, but it's just because there were three gifts that they eventually, of course, brought and presented to Jesus. Now, um, these, these wise men were probably like astrologers. They were watching the stars. They were from the eastern lands, but they knew tons of Jews that were living in that particular area. And, and for them, when they realized they wanted to go and to chase down this particular star, as we're going to find out, it would have been a long journey. So if you kind of look at Google Maps today, uh, where they were from, probably the region of Babylon, which is kind of like modern-day Iraq. Uh, this town um, that I Google Maps it from is, is close to where they would say ancient Babylon is from, which again, kind of the region. And so if you walked it today from there all the way to Jerusalem, would take about 231 hours. It's, you know, 1,100 kilometers. Uh, I was doing lots of different research and, t- and reading different commentaries about this journey and about this whole narrative. Um, the, my favorite, and you should check it out, is this Michael Wilkins uh, commentary on Matthew. It's fascinating. He would actually assume that because, of course, they didn't have the same roads that we do today, the journey was probably even longer than 1,100 kilometers. And at, those, at that point in history, if you're going to go on a long journey, you need a lot of preparation. So for them, they recognize they want to go on this journey. They got to prepare for it. They gather up their troop. They got to gather up their supplies. And theoretically, it would have taken them, by the time they actually arrived in Jerusalem, it could have taken a year, 18 months in order for them to actually get there. It's quite the big undertaking. So we've got these wise men. And, and, they, and they knew to go or they knew or they recognized the, the importance of this because, again, they were living in this part of the world way, way, way over here in, 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 in where Babylon was. And, and they had uh, neighbors that would have been probably Jewish neighbors that understood and knew some of the things that were foretold about this, this Christmas story. Because if you track in the Old Testament, and I know this is lots of history, but, but there were, were this big exile where all of the Jews from the land of Israel were exiled into Babylon. And although lots of them came back, a lot of them remained there because they had their homes, they kind of set up their life. And so they would have been sharing their stories and their prophecies. And so these wise men had heard the stories of the, the king that the Jews were anticipating, and they see this star and they make their way. And so we continue reading. They ask, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. This newborn king of the Jews, a very important prophecy where the Jews were expecting somebody from the line of David to come back and to be the one that they could pledge allegiance to that would rescue them. Now, the interesting thing I think, to this whole story, is that we read next that King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this. Deeply disturbed, which begs the question, and, I, and you know, we all should be asking this, why was King Herod so deeply disturbed? And the answer is this. Herod's expectation was that he was the king of the Jews. He actually believed that he was the one meant to be the king of the Jews. And this is kind of how it happened. So, so he was, you know, a, a, a little while before this, 
He was a governor in that area. He was ruling as kind of this Rome-appointed person that was in charge of this region. But there was some infighting. There was some people that were wanting to push him out. They actually gathered some support from the east. They brought in some troops and they got Herod out of there. And so Herod is leaving Jerusalem, walking away from where he was ruling, frustrated because he wanted to be in charge of the land. And so at this point in time, again, you know, years before this, this account, Herod works his way all the way to Rome to go and ask for help. Along the way, he interacts with people that you would know from history, people like Cleopatra, real person, he has this conversation with her on the way, and she's like, hey, why don't you come and like oversee part of my military? And he's like, no, no, I've got this plan. I'm on my way to Rome. He meets in Rome with his friend Mark Antony, where he pleads his case, and he tells him, would you please help me? Would you convince the Roman Senate? to please help me that I can rule in this area. And so we have this account from, from one of the Jewish historians, Josephus is his name, where he actually says, whereupon Antony was moved to compassion at the change that had been made in Herod's affairs. So he then resolved to get him made king of the Jews. And so the Roman Senate votes and they make Herod king of the Jews. But Herod knows he's not really the king. He knew the prophecies. He knew that there was somebody yet to come. And yet here he is, waltzing back to Jerusalem. And so what does he do? Well, he does a few things. There's a few things that are pretty key. He recaptures Jerusalem with the support of Rome. He comes, he kicks out the people that had booted him. He reestablishes his reign as the king. He does, number two, builds all these fortresses along the eastern uh, side of his, his territory so as to protect from invaders coming in from the east. And then he starts to search for threats. He wants to reestablish himself and make sure that nobody, nobody would challenge his identity again. And so he starts to kind of piece it through. And some people suggest maybe he had like secret police and, and he was very, very paranoid. The longer he lived and the longer he was the king of the Jews, he was increasingly paranoid that somebody might threaten his reign. And so there actually are times when he would execute opponents. Whether or not they were really opponents, we're not 100% sure, but he would look at people like even his own wife and sons who were kind of rising up or, or asking questions about who would rule. And, and he would squash that by, by executing them. He's this terrible, terrible, terrible human being who, as he increasingly got more paranoid, it, it kind of came to this head towards the point of his death where you could kind of understand and see his narcissism and his character play out. Again, Josephus, the, the historian, he writes this. Um, this is a quote from Herod about his life. As he's coming to his, the end of his life, a really awful disease, he knows that he's dying. He says this, I shall die in a little time, so great are my pains, but what principally troubles me is this, that I shall die without being lamented that nobody would be sad and without such mourning as men usually expect at a king's death. And so what does he do? He makes this big plan. He actually gathers a bunch of well-respected men and, and he wants to put them in the Hippodrome and he wants to write this decree that the minute that he as King Herod dies, that all of these well-respected men would then be slaughtered so that no matter what, upon his death, there would be mourning in the land. Sounds like quite the gem of a human being, huh? This is, the, this is the King Herod. He knew that he wasn't the king of the Jews. And so we have these wise men come without understanding his whole background and his whole detail. And, and they innocently ask where this newborn king of the Jews is. And, and Herod, he turns because he's faced all of a sudden with the truth. All of a sudden, he's face to face with what he knows to be true and that he is not the rightful heir. And so... When he's faced with it, what does Herod actually do? 
He manipulates and controls. So we go back to the narrative in Matthew. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this. And all Jerusalem with him because they knew what he was capable of. And he knew, they knew, that it was awful news when he was angry. And so King Herod manipulates the wise men to try to control the outcome. He tells them, ah, I want to go and worship as well. Why don't you go ahead, find where this newborn king is, and then you can point him out to me, and I will go. But it's a manipulation because he's anticipating if they can come back and tell him where this king is, he is going to issue his, his assassin, uh, assassin to go and to take care of things, to control the situation. And so he's got the whole plan together. It's all right there in the narrative. But, but he's outwitted. He's outwitted because the magi, the wise men, they have this dream after interacting with King Jesus. And in the dream, they're told, do not go back to Herod, go a different way. And so they do. Joseph, the father of Jesus, has a dream as well. Escape to Egypt, take your wife, take your child, get out of here. And so he does. And so Herod realizes he has been outwitted and he goes into a rage. It's awful. But in order to try to control again this outcome, when he realizes that the wise men aren't coming back, he does this gives orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under to squash this true king of the Jews. Unfortunately, it wouldn't have been uncommon in those days for something like this to occur, especially with a king like Herod. The bloodshed was not uncommon. It would have been fairly, fairly easy. Uh, Bethlehem is just about a five-mile trip from Jerusalem. It was a small town. Maybe it was 10 families that were affected. But that was the reign of King Herod. And here we are thousands of years later, this, this man who, who wanted to be known, but wanted to be known for good reasons. He was so nervous that, that people would despise him. And now for 2,000 years, every year as we reread this story, we reread his life as a B-list villain and despise him again and again and again. Herod, the man who died a slave to his own sin, a slave to his own narcissism. Merry Christmas. Right? But like, what do we do with this story? Like, this is part of the Christmas story, the Christmas narrative, like, Honestly, as you read that, it's like, this is a little frustratingly confusing, maybe. Because oftentimes, if you've been somebody that's read through the Christian scriptures, oftentimes we get to places that we have like a, uh, an imperative, something that we're told to do, and it kind of makes sense. You read it, and you're like, oh, this is something that maybe I should do. This is an ancient book. There's lots of wisdom in it. Let's, let's follow through. And, and the commands can be really, really helpful and really, really clear. Things like love one another. That's in John. It's like, oh, yeah, I get that. That makes sense. Do not neglect meeting together. That's a great one. You know, give wine to those who are bitter. That's nah, true. It's in Proverbs. So maybe that's helpful at Christmas time. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever you decide. But then we get into these narrative sections and it's like, what do we do with this story of this awful king and, and the murderous rampage and, and what does it mean? 
And so I want to read to you a, a quote from a phenomenal YouTube channel you should check out if you haven't already. It's called The Bible Project. They're uh, really great theologians and, and Bible historians, and they unpack Scripture in a great way. And trying to understand how we're supposed to engage with the Scriptures in, in times like this, um, they explain it this way. They say, in Psalm 1, we read about the ideal Bible reader. It's someone who meditates on the Scripture day and night. And honestly, no matter where you're at in your faith journey, this is something that is worthwhile and that you can do and you can try, even if you're not sure that all this stuff is 100% true, I will want you to go along in the journey because I think it has a profound impact on all of us, no matter what you believe. So they say this, they say, in Hebrew, the word meditate actually means literally to mutter or speak quietly. Mutter or speak quietly. And here's why. Because the idea is that every day for the rest of your life, you slowly, quietly read the Bible out loud to yourself, but then this is the important part, go and talk about it with your friends pondering the puzzles, making connections, and discovering what it all means. It's meant to be discussed in community, and like this, in small groups, and lots of you are in small groups, with your team that you volunteer with, with the people that you'll have lunch with, whatever it might, whatever it might mean. And, and then, and this, this is so helpful. They say, as you let the Bible interpret itself, something remarkable happens. Something remarkable. The Bible actually starts to read you, because ultimately, the writers of the Bible want you to adopt this story as your story. That as you meditate on the scriptures, that this story could become your story. And the way that I think it works for this story is we have to ask ourselves and reflect on two, I think, critical questions. The first one isn't personal. The second one is. The first question is this. Why was Jesus such a threat to Herod? Why was Jesus so threatening? He was a baby. And yet Herod was so threatened by him. And I think the answer is, is fairly clear. Jesus threatened Herod's identity, who he expected himself to be. And Jesus stepped in even as the baby and broke that identity wide open and revealed to Herod what he already knew. And so the second question that as we read this, I think we have to wrestle with, is how does Jesus, how does he threaten your identity? How does Jesus threaten your identity? Because maybe for you, somewhere along the line, somebody told you that you could be and do all that you wanted to be and do if only you tried hard enough. You could be anything you wanted. Do anything. And so you kind of believed that and you took that and you kind of built maybe a life around it and you put all this time, effort, and energy into becoming the kind of person or doing the kinds of things that you thought you were supposed to do. But the, that expectation you've held on yourself is crushing because as you've built up your identity, you've realized that life is hard and it doesn't always go the way that you would expect. And so you've created this identity that, that is actually misplaced. And what's, what ends up happening is, is you've anchored yourself to something that is causing you to drown. And Jesus, Jesus invites us as he has upended the whole power structures of this world. He invites us to actually allow him to give us our identity. That his identity to us is one that we simply receive. We don't have to achieve. That we can be marked first and foremost by our relation to him and what he says about us instead of our own identities that we have built up. And so what this means is that if you have, and maybe this is your story, 
If you've wrapped up your identity in your job, it's misplaced. And you'll discover that at some point, but I'm here to say you don't have to wait any longer. If you have misplaced your identity and, and, and stuck it into this job, and that is everything about who you are, friends, you can release the pressure of that, and you do not have to be simply the title that you hold when you go to work. Or how about this? If your identity is wrapped up in your account balances, your identity is misplaced. You'll find it out eventually. I hope, I hope that it's sooner than later. But you do not have to be simply what your net worth is. How about this one? If your identity is wrapped up in what others think of you and their expectations, your identity is misplaced. You can be free from that because there is a Jesus who was born and who wants to give you an identity that's so much greater than that and what he says about you. How about this one? If your identity is wrapped up in how you express yourself, your identity, it's misplaced. If your identity is wrapped up in who or what you like, your identity, it's misplaced. Or this one, and this one might be hard. If your identity is wrapped up in your political views, your identity is, is misplaced. And there's probably a person or two that needs to hear this today. Let me tell you that, that for generations before Jesus was born, people were expectant of what he was going to do and how he was going to transform the world. And they knew that when he came, things would never be the same again. And they wrote prophecy knowing about who this king would be. And they wrote it. And we sing about it. You know this. In Isaiah, it says, For unto us a child is born, and the government will be on his shoulders. And yet, some of you have wrapped up your identity in something so fleeting and insignificant as the political structures of our day today. And you have missed the opportunity to put your identity into the king of kings whose kingdom knows no end. And so friends, this, this Christmas, this Christmas when you see the baby in the manger, I think we have to ask ourselves this question. How does Jesus, how does he threaten your identity? And it's a question that you should take and, and again, wrestle with more than just yourself, with the people around you, the people that are close to you, because it could transform everything. And, and when you know how he threatens your identity, will you surrender? Will you surrender that to him? It's an invitation that he gives to us all, and it's an invitation that can transform our lives so that you can have a different outcome than Herod did, and you can be transformed by this baby king that thousands of years ago transformed the world. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, our identities are so critical to us. And so as we talk about this, it's so easy just to say it and yet so difficult to tease out the parts of our heart that we, that we have, have, have given over to minor gods who have no power compared to your power. And yet, God, I believe that your spirit, your Holy Spirit, is actually powerful enough to sift through all of that and to each and every one of us to speak to that identity. 
and to help us shed off the falsehoods and accept and receive that identity that you give to each and every one of us. And so, Father, I pray that that this Christmas, that we would expect you to work in our lives, that we would expect you to be real, that we would expect you to transform not just our own circles, but the circles all around us. That at this time in history, more than maybe any other time, that we could recognize and know across all boundaries that you are the King of kings. And Lord, your kingdom knows no end. And so go with us, I pray. God, give us the the wisdom to know how to take this and apply it to our lives. And then Heavenly Father, would you give us the courage, the courage to take the steps that you would have for us. Pray all these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about Moncton Wesleyan, we invite you to visit our website at mw.church. We are here to help you with any questions you might have. See you next time.